everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Dollar Bin Bandits, the only podcast with old friends discussing old comics with the people that created them. I'm Joe Marcello, joined as always by my partners in crime, Orrin Phillips. Hey, hey, hey. And Mike Farah. Hello, hello, hello. So, welcome everybody to our podcast audio only episode on this Friday. Uh, I hope you all are having a great week, and this is a great way to kind of welcome in the weekend. Today, we have the pleasure of presenting to you our interview with Mike Manley. Uh, Interesting guy. He's worked on all kinds of stuff, comic books, uh, regular book um, illustration, animation art. Um, He's also an art teacher. So uh, he's really done a fair amount of work in the business. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. He's now part of the... uh lineage of uh, phantom comic strip writers uh phantom you know popular in the states a lot more popular we'll find out here overseas but, uh, folks love the phantom and uh i always thought a very underrated artist and it's so cool that he's carrying on uh the the phantom mantle as far as it goes with comic strips yeah i do remember him uh from the comic days of your particularly the 90s uh specifically some of his batman runs and uh i think it did quasar uh but you know this is a good companion piece to the uh earlier episode with danny fingeroth because mike manley of course was uh part of that creative team for darkhawk so um over the space of a couple days we have sort of a darkhawk reunion um, but, uh, uh, as Joe said, you know, it goes well beyond, um, just comic books and, uh, we talk about his whole career. So lo- lots of things to dig into and without further ado, let's talk with Mike Manley. Um, so I just want to start off, uh, with your early experiences with Marvel. You know, I, I you were part of, I guess, a group of younger artists coming in yourself, guys like Ron Lim. Um, Jim Lee, uh, McFarlane, and there was a good mix of veterans there as well. Uh, what was the atmosphere like when you first started at Marvel? Uh, let's see, that was around 84. Um, and I was living in Philly. I had moved from Michigan to Philly. Um, and I didn't get up to the uh, uh, studio uh, or to the offices as much as I wanted because I would drive, I would take the train up from Philly. It was um, much more informal, especially compared to these days where it's like you can't even really get into the offices I hear anymore. I mean, it's like lockdown, you know, I mean, anybody could walk in, you know, it was very, it was much more open and much more laid back. The industry was much smaller. Um, It was more casual. And uh, the uh, Jim Shooter was in charge of the time when he first started? Yes, Jim was still. Okay. Yeah. I know they uh, he worked on a, a variety of different books while at Marvel. Uh, a few that we want to touch on. My, my first one is um, you worked on Deathlock, which I always thought it was a cool book. And you were inking on that one? Yeah, I inked over uh, Dennis Cowan's pencils, yeah. How was it working with him? It was, uh, it was fun. Um, uh, Dennis had a, a very sort of expressionistic, loose style, very influenced by uh, people like Sergio Topi, who was a great uh, uh, Italian artist. Um, and and uh, it was, so it was a lot. It was it was fun. 
I always enjoyed inking other people's work um, because um, you sort of like get to walk in somebody else's shoes a little bit when you do that, you know, and I, and I like the technical exercise of inking. So it was always fun. You prefer inking or, or drawing uh, if you had your druthers? Well, I guess I prefer drawing. I mean, right. I always penciled and inked at the same time. So I was always doing my own stuff, but I was always thinking other people's work too. Now, uh, behind the scenes, Deathlock, you know, it, it was sort of, I know there was a graphic novel that came out before the ongoing series. And before that was Rich Buckler's uh, run on it in the late seventies. Uh, what was the thought of, of bringing the character back full time? I have no, I, I have no <laughs> idea, <laughs> you know, I mean, I remember the character, probably the Buckler stuff, um, and I think the plan at that point with Marvel was they were just sort of relaunching or launching new books. They were trying to do, I think, one or two new books a month. Uh, that was sort of the end of what I consider regular sort of mainstream comics, where you could buy a comic at a 7-Eleven, supermarket newsstand whatever and they were putting on all of the different stuff like dark hawk and sleepwalker and all this stuff and you know some lasted some didn't last right. but after that thing it really wasn't the same after that you know first of all because that version of marvel comics went bankrupt so everything a lot of things changed a lot of people changed a lot, a lot of stuff really changed yeah, when when that happened and the the new group came in, you hear from a lot of people that it was sort of like a a huge change within almost morality office the way things were being handled. Did you notice that as well? Well, basically, what happened within a period of a couple of years is that most of the people I worked with no longer worked with the company. Okay. Right, mostly editors, people that were editors or assistant editors or assistant editors who became editors. Most of the people I worked with by the late nineties were kind of either gone or transitioning out. Uh, in 96, I left uh, comics and went into working in animation. So I would come back in and, you know, do stuff, uh, including my own stuff. Um, but a lot of the people that I had worked with, um, we're no longer in the offices, you know, they, 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 when Marvel went bankrupt, I think most of those people kind of got the clean sweep. There was a few people left who transitioned. Um, but yeah, a lot of things really changed. It changed the nature of your relationship with the company because most fans probably don't really think of it this way. But at that point, comics had always sort of been like, uh, Hey, you want to do this thing? Hey, you want to ink Deathlock? Hey, you know, you're in the office. Hey, you want to do this, right? It was much more informal, right? right. Um, and when the the uh, money started coming into it, like the big money, um, that changed the nature of people's relationships, people's working relationships, people's loyalty. It, a lot of things changed editorially in your relationship to the company. It was not as informal then. And was that, how did you feel personally, you know, seeing all this going on? Well, that's one of the reasons I got out of comics. Yeah. It just wasn't your scene anymore. And well, I, you know, I had been doing it uh, since 90, since 84 when I got in. By 96, I had started self-publishing. 
And I'd always been interested in animation anyway, and had originally thought about going into animation as well. Uh, so I had an opportunity to start working on the uh, Warner Brothers cartoons, and I leapt at it because I could also see that at that point, comics was in free fall. The numbers monthly were going down, stores are closing, and things were were uh, really in free fall. So I thought, well, my, now might be a good time to see what else was out there. So I wanted to uh, ask you about Darkhawk. Um, I just read the uh, the new uh, new uh, Heart of the Hawk uh, that came out, uh, mm -hmm. which I really enjoyed because I love the uh, the structure of that story. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I thought it was a great jumping off point for new readers uh, just cause you know, I haven't read it in like ages and I'm sure I have a bunch of, you know, behind me in those boxes, I have a bunch of them. But um, so I, you know, I read this one. I love like the two, the, th the three uh, era kind of stories um, of the, of the new issue. Um, how is it, you know, working on that? Because we, we had a chance to talk to uh, Danny Fingeroth about it uh, earlier in the week. And um, so I'd love to get your your impression of working on Darkhawk. Because I, I thought it was a pretty pretty neat character in that it was street level, but there was also, you know, a very galactic, uh, you know, feel to it as well. Yeah. Um, well, initially... Uh, I had approached Danny and I had this idea because people kept, people have always asked me about Dark Hawk since I left the book. Uh, I'm sorry. I hope I'm <laughs> dredging it up for you. Right. And, <laughs> and they really, uh, you know, guys your age, right. We're reading it as teenagers. Yeah. Right. And that is the big, the big well of fans for that character. Right. Um, and I had seen John Byrne had been doing this sort of fan fiction of whatever the FF and X-Men or whatever. So I, I had approached Danny with the idea like, well, why don't we just do like a little short story and just stick it on the web just for the hell of it. Just, just for fun. Just because a lot of people have asked. And before that, whenever Marvel had relaunched the book, they had never, asked me or Danny to be involved in it. So mm -hmm. Danny said, well, wait, let me run it past them again. And I guess it was Synergy because it was the 30th anniversary. I think they're probably, the rumor has been for the last couple of years that they're going to do something with the character and so and somehow he's going to, you know, he's going to be uh, in the background of Guardians of the Galaxy or something. Um and they he he pitched it and they went for it. So the idea was to do that story just like you know issue twenty six, like I had never left. So I tried to do it in the style that I did it then, mm -hmm. because it's supposed to be from that era. So I really tried to go back and kind of give it the same feel, although the coloring by uh, Chris Sotomayor is so fantastic. It's much better than any coloring I've ever had working for uh, Marvel in DC and certainly better than, you know, the, the old coloring back in the day, you know? So uh, that's, that's how that, it, that came about. So it was just sort of like a, had the idea approach Danny, 
Danny ran it past Marvel. I guess CC Sobolski is uh, an old Darkhawk fan like you guys. So, um, you know. Do you have plans to continue working on that going forward or if they ask? No, I don't. I, I have no, I have no plans at this point. Uh, I don't think that they want Danny and I involved anymore because I think they want to relaunch it Mm. maybe down the road with like a whole new team. I would assume if they were interested, they would have said something. So, you know, maybe in another 30 years, they'll (laughs) come back and they'll ask me again. So. Now, how big a difference was there from your initial sketch of Darkhawk to what, you know, came out uh, in in the books? (laughs) I just did one. I did a drawing. Really? (laughs) uh, Yeah. And showed it to, they had somebody else. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was either Keith Pollard or somebody had done a take on the character before I did, and they didn't. They didn't kind of like what it was. Sort of it seemed like it was some sort of like almost like an Egyptian theme or something. So I was working uh, um, with. I was doing Quasar, and Howard Mackey was my editor. And he said, well, do you want to take a crack at it? And I did. And I, I, you know, came up with the idea. And my idea was sort of probably a little retro even at the time, because I always liked the way guys like Romita or Kirby or Ditko would design a character uh, that was iconic, but also streamlined. You know, now everybody's got thousands of doodads and gadgets and actually one of the things i i don't like about a lot of comics now is that comics influence the movies which is great but now the movies are influencing comics so like everybody's got all this extra junk all over them which looks good in a movie but it doesn't look good to me as good to me as a comic book drawing it's like if you look at the cities everybody's using photographs, right? And going over photographs and it makes it very normal to me in a way, very, very normal. One of the things I liked, you know, I was thinking like, I liked that Namor costume that Ramita came up with where he had the black costume, right? right? I like the wings of the Falcon. Um, and I was thinking, okay, like he's a hawk, so I thought the beak shape of, like, if you combine, like, a motorcycle helmet with the shape of a beak, that's kind of how you, why I came up with the shape. Because I'm trying to remember, Tom DeFalco had the idea. And then they were trying to find an artist to come up, you know, to flesh out the concept. But all the backstory, like, I wasn't given a Bible, like, oh, this is Chris Powell, and this is... You know, all the stuff is just like, it was very free form. Like I said, back then things like now would be like, you get a pitch Bible and, you know, you do a bunch of stuff and everything would be all planned out. But back then it was really kind of loose. You know, you draw something and then, yeah, or change this or whatever, you know. Um, and and uh, so like all the stuff with uh, the switching of the body that sort of developed as we went along. Um, 
because it wasn't really sure like where the body went, right? So it was sort of like Captain Marvel, you know, he had the mega bands where he would switch the Marvel comics version or Shazam and he would switch. So it was sort of like you took that with Spider-Man, the teenager, and you sort of combine that which I think is one of the reasons that it seems the readers related to that. They liked that. Yep. So he wasn't like Captain America or he wasn't more mature. And that seemed to click with, with the fans. That makes sense. And behind the scenes, was there, was there a lot of excitement in Marvel for the character? Or was it just sort of, let's see what happens and, and go from there? Yeah, I think it was just like throw it against the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> it's funny because it's it's. I don't think he was ever thought of as being very cool. It was never considered to be a hot book. I had found some old royalties and so old um, sales figures when I was going through stuff in the attic, and uh, people would kill to have the sales of Darkhawk now, you know. But he was never considered to be like Wolverine or the Punisher. Cause at that time it's like Wolverine was like in every book, the Punisher was in every book, whatever was hot was in every book, you know, Venom was in every book, you know? Um, <laughs> and he was not, you know, it's like in the middle, middle of the road kind of a thing, you know? Uh, a couple of the books I want to talk to you about. One of them you, you touched on uh, Quasar and you had a, a run on Alpha Flight. Is it tough for an artist to kind of come into a book sort of midway or, or later on? And did you have to sort of follow the art that was done before, or were you kind of free to do what you wanted with the character? Uh, well, in Alpha Flight, I was inking it. Okay. So that's, you know, that's pretty easy yeah. from the standpoint that you're, you know, you're trying to enhance the artwork, um, but you're not necessarily setting the tone. Right. Um, Quasar uh, was my first book because I think uh, Paul, the late Paul Ryan, was leaving to go do Fantastic Four, I think. So, and it's not like his style and my style were that dissimilar in a way. You know, it's not like, you know, uh, you know, Jack Kirby and Neil Adams or something where it's like really extreme uh, difference. But I did experiment with my style a bit on that because you did get some pushback at that time because uh, that was when Rob Liefeld and other guys, Todd was doing Spider-Man. So there was this sort of pushback to um, make your – all the editors wanted those, their books to sell like those books, yep. right? All right. Now, I always say if you took McFarlane or Jim Lee and let's put them on um, something like, uh, I don't know, like uh, Night Nurse or Archie, it's not going to sell. Right. Part of it is that you take a popular artist, but you also put a popular artist on a popular book, right? If you take, you know, that, then that's the the combination that 
that sells. But if you take a popular artist and you put them on a character that's like not uh, like not Batman, right, or not Wolverine, you get a different you get a different result. Because um, you can even see that with Image, when the guys at Image, there were certain things that he did that sold well, and other things that they did that like sales were not that fantastic, right? So, um, uh, so yeah, on, on and on Quasar, it was fun. Uh, Mark Grunewald was a really good guy. Um, he was very encouraging. Uh, in fact, the first time I went to Marvel in 1983, I, had, I met Brett Blevins, who had gotten hired by Marvel. And he was moving from Las Vegas uh, to New York or Connecticut, where he had, he had got an apartment or was looking for an apartment. So I met him when he came through Ann Arbor, where I was living, because his uncle was friends of the guy, uh, Norm, who ran the Eye of Agamotto, which is the comic book store that I used to go to. So I met him and became friends. And he said, well, when I get there, you know, so I started sending samples and he gave me the phone numbers of the guys at Marvel, the editors, and I made a uh, call and I drove out. This tells you how different the industry is. I called every Marvel editor from Ann Arbor, Michigan, who didn't know me from Adam. <laughs> every single one of them answered their phone. Wow. Every single one of them made an appointment with me. When I drove, stayed with Brett, and we went in, I saw every single Marvel editor. That would never happen now. That's like a, a Pangea that doesn't exist. But I remember, and I had, you know, samples and... They were very, uh, I had actually posted them on my Facebook page in a while. They were very sort of like Kirby, Basema, which is the stuff that I, you know, I really loved. And to me, said Marvel Comics, but that wasn't really what Marvel was doing at the time. It was what John Byrne was doing, which was really wasn't my thing. But I remember sitting with Mark Grunewald in his office and him going over my work on his the sofa in his office and giving me a lot of really good feedback and then what three four years later we were working together how important is that to have uh, an editor like that who takes the time to talk to you and and you know give you feedback it's essential yeah it's essential and one of the things that really hurts the business now and has hurt the business for a really long time is that you really don't have editors like that, right? Because those guys were trained by Julie Schwartz, Archie Goodwin, the guys who go way back into the history of comics. And so they have a history of comics, a history of the medium. And now you have people who don't know the history of the medium, certainly don't know my history, right? right? And you really need a, a really, everybody, Jack Kirby needed a good editor, right? Everybody needs a good, a good editor, but you know, the business has changed so much, especially like, like I said, when I left in 96 to go into animation, I would come back and do a little thing here, do a little thing there. But every time I came back, there were less people in the companies that I worked with than were there the previous time. And then basically soon, like all those people, Carl Potts, 
people like that who are also artists, right? Uh, Louise Simonson, uh, you know, there were a lot of really, really good people who, you know, and Wheezy had worked, you know, for Warren, had been an editor and a writer at Warren. Um, you just didn't have that kind of bench anymore. And that, that does make a difference because when you're a young artist, you really benefit from having, you know, it's just like if you're a rookie on a baseball team, everybody helps you, right? All the, the first base coach is helping you. This person is helping you. Everybody's helping you. Right. Um, and you really benefit from that, you know? Um, and now the business is so decentralized. People don't go into the bullpen. <laughs> if there is even a bullpen, no more John Romita's, you know, no more people like that. So it's, it's completely different from that standpoint. You know, if you're a young person coming in, you might work for a small company, but you're not going to have somebody who's been working for 20, 30, 40 years say, Oh, you know, this is pretty good, but you might think about this or, you know, it's, it's really different. Makes sense. Uh, one more Quasar question. Cause I, I am a fan. Um, I just always wondered why Quasar didn't take off as big as I thought it could have. I mean, at the time, uh, remember Silver Surfer was pretty hot. And Quasar, you know, the galactic stories and stuff like that. Do you think there was a missing ingredient in Quasar that kind of kept it from going to the next level? What is Yeet? Why is Yeet? Gentlemen, look it up in the dictionary. Yeet is the greatest comic book anthology, independent comic book anthology on the market. Uh, Yeet actually is defined as to hurl or move an object forcefully or as an exclamation of enthusiasm. And that's what the comic is. On a month-to-month basis, you get enthusiasm. You get forward motion. You get all the good stuff that the dictionary says you should get from Yeet Presents. Give me some of the artists that are coming up, Oren, or have been in Yeet. We have uh, great artists like Eric Luna Salazar. We've had Tom Wojciechowski do the lettering. We've had Mike Barron doing a story. We've had a lot of great people, uh, friends of mine, Dennis Miller, uh, Jason Mink, Mike Jones. The list goes on and on and on for $5 a month. You too to be part of the Yeet Army. And you can have it all yeeted at your face. Look for the link in our show notes to their Patreon and get your yeet on. $5 a month. What else are you going to do with that $5? You're just going to waste it. Give it to yeet. Get some good stories and yeet it up. I don't know. You know, I mean, I think he's a character that's kind of derivative, right? Because he was a little bit of Superman, a little bit of Captain Marvel. Uh, You know, and they're just some like there's some characters that are just cooler, you know, and are going to be more, more popular, you know, I mean, the same way with Darkhawk, you know, he was never going to sell like Spider-Man or Wolverine, you know, because in, in, to some degree, to some degree, everybody's derivative, right? Cause after Superman, everybody's kind of derivative, but there's a lot of characters that are sort of like, Oh, they're like, kind of like the X-Men or that guy's kind of like, you know, you had the original, handful of marvel characters the ff thor spider-man right and then you have your original 
you know, like the Justice League, right? Those characters. And then you have the third version of Green Lantern. There's no way that that character is probably ever going to be as popular as Green Lantern. And Green Lantern is probably never going to be as popular as Batman. Like he never was, even back, you know, his most popular stuff. So again, like that kind of ties into what I was saying before. You could take a popular artist, the most, the hottest person working now, put him on Quasar, and it might heat up, but it's probably not going to boil. You know. Gotcha. So I wanted to ask, um, at what point did you go to DC, and what was the what was the atmosphere like for you uh, between Marvel and DC? Well, I started at DC. Oh, you did? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, I started on a book called Robotech Defenders, being an assistant and working on that, which was like uh, right when like Transformers and all that stuff was really sort of... Oh, I remember Robotech for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I knew what the Transformers were, but I didn't know what Robotech was or whatever. So those are the samples that I had. Which, of course, when I went to Marvel, then they go, oh, well, you draw robots, so here, here, here you know, work on the, the Transformers. Um, <laughs> the, the difference, I think, at, at the time was that Marvel felt more loose and more informal. And DC felt like, I always felt, even to this day, like DC is the secret handshake club. It's like, oh, you're yeah. rock. They're scissors. Your scissors, they're paper. It's like I always felt like it was never as, it was always more formal. You know, when I started there, guys like uh, Julie Schwartz were still working. It was a very different feel, you know. It was much more like, like Dick Giordano would wear a suit. I think Jim Shooter wore a suit. Maybe John Romita wore a suit. You know, he had like a dresser. He wasn't wearing a t-shirt with floor on it. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, so it was a little bit different. And those guys of that generation and people like Shooter, who were an executive, did dress in a different. They did dress like businessmen because right. they were they were businessmen, probably doing business all day. You know, not a hippie in the bullpen making corrections. You know. <laughs> Now, did you get the opportunity to choose which uh, comics you got to work on? Because, yeah, I mean, you really have worked on some fantastic stuff. Uh, I mean, Batman, Aquaman, Superman, uh, Power of Shazam. I'll even say Convergence, which some people were not so much a fan of. But there were aspects of it I thought that were good. Not yeah. criticizing, not criticizing. <laughs> well, I, I, usually what happens is it's all who you know. Like, for instance, how inking, how inking Alpha Flight came about was I was sharing Al Williamson's studio with him and uh, Brett. Brett and I were sharing Al's studio. Al was inking Daredevil over John Romita. There was a fill-in issue, which breakdowns by Ditka. And when the stuff came in, Al looked at it and goes, uh, you know, Ditko's was very structural. There was no rendering, no blacks, not a lot of detail. You really had to go in and like, you had to do the heavy, all the storytelling and everything was all there. But the the details and everything, and you know, Ditko is a, a cartoony guy, you know, and Al is not a cartoony guy. 
So he was like, I don't know if I feel comfortable doing this. He was going to send it back. And I said, no, don't send it back. Keep it. And then what I did is I tightened up the pencils. I pulled out all my Wally Wood daredevils and I tightened it up. And then Al and I inked it. I probably inked about 70% of it. Carl Potts saw that, was very impressed with it, and offered me Alpha Flight. And then once you're on that, and then somebody else, oh, I like what you're doing on that. Hey, are you interested in? And that's, again, it was very informal. Um, mm-hmm. I never walked in and like requested, I request to do, <laughs> you know, it, it didn't happen like that. Um, Does it ever really? I mean, I, with the, you know, I, I, you know, I guess you could ask for stuff. I, you know, I was sort of like, okay, you get on Alpha Flight and you're working on that. And then you go in and then somebody says, hey, you want to do this? I mean, there were certain books I would have liked to have worked on, maybe like the Fantastic Four. And, you know, I was initially sort of interested and excited uh, about working on Batman. And then I wasn't. Um, uh, So it it was much more informal. And it was because who you know and who you know... You know, like I was friends with Al, then I became friends with Archie Goodwin, and then Archie said, hey, you want to do a Legends of the Dark Knight, which sort of led me to doing Batman. So it was never like, you know, you you go in and you like, there's a bunch of stuff and you say, oh, that's the one, you know. I mean, some guys did that, you know, probably if they were hanging out in the offices, they could keep going into the editor of the Silver Surfer and go, hey, man. You know, I really want to do the Super Surfer. Yeah, I got to fill in or whatever. But since I didn't live in New York, you know, I didn't, and I wasn't going in like, I would go in, you know, a couple times a year. I wasn't even going in every month, right? Mm. So I think that probably also might might have made a difference because there's a lot of guys who were in New York and got stuff because they were in the offices that day and somebody blew a deadline and they go, hey, I, we need seven pages of the X-Men by Monday. You want to take three? Kind of a thing. Now, which characters, DC, Marvel, what have you, did you really absolutely just love working on? I really loved working on Power Shazam because uh, I think Jerry did a great job and Pete Krause did a great job. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um and I liked working on Superman Adventures because I really enjoyed working on the TV show. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that version of Superman. I still think that that's like the best version of Superman because you could pull in a little bit of the Fleischer stuff. Yeah. And he, and they're, they were never trying to make Superman into Batman. And for the last 20 years, DC keeps trying to make Superman into Batman. They keep trying to make him this dark, troubled person, which is completely the opposite of what thank you yeah you know or it would be or would almost be like them going back to the smiling batman which would drive you know uh, <laughs> fans into the sea you know um because i also think that one of the things that i liked about the character which is gone now has been gone since dark knight is that he's no longer a detective. He's just this mean old son of a bitch who has a billion dollars 
And now he doesn't even have the billion dollars. Yeah. Well, you know, so, <laughs> you know, um, I think the character is basically a one note character now. He's not interesting anymore. You know, I mean, I enjoyed Dark Knight, but I think the fact that everything went that one way, he's just, you know, I like the the old Jim Apparel stuff. I liked that stuff back in the day. Sometimes it was goofy and that's okay. Or the the the, the Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill stuff, which I loved as a kid, you know, that was my, that was, that's my you know, my version of Batman. He was much more of a well, he was more like James Bond. Mm. Right? He was a much more well-rounded and interesting character. Now he's not really, I don't find him to be that interesting. And speaking of Batman, you were part of, you know, and I know you, you sort of prefaced this before that you weren't too thrilled with Batman, but part of a big issue, a big stream of issues with Batman with the new suit, um, Azrael sort of taking over. Could you talk to us a little bit about the planning and how all that got together? I, you know, I was just the gunslinger. I was just a hired gun. I had no input on that, right? They 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 wanted Jim Apparel to have one big send-off. So that's why they did the 500th issue, and they split it so it would be Jim leaving and me starting, right? I didn't design any of that stuff. They got Joe Casada to design Azrael. So I, you know, I get this design. And that was sort of the beginning of kind of what turned me off a little bit was that, you know, it wasn't like you would come on and you would be creating. They would have these, they ended up having a conference that I didn't go to where they would plan all this, these arcs. And then like, you get to do this, this person gets to do that. This person gets to do this, this person to do that. And so while we're working on it, I'm having to wait for Graham to draw something or Breck to draw something or Jim Ballant to draw something. And it wasn't what I thought I was going to do, which was cool standalone or two or three issues or something. It became this big, big thing, which financially, and for my career was good, but artistically it wasn't very enjoyable because it was sort of like, well, you just have to do this part and then you get to do this part. And maybe you're lucky and the Joker's you're in your issue or he's not in your issue. You got to draw the flyer fly or whatever. So yeah, it was, it was a very, uh, it was, it was also different than my experience in Marvel is that because I was more, involved because I would get a plot as opposed to getting a full script. Gotcha. That was also very different. All right. Yeah, another iconic character you worked on, which I think is very cool, the Phantom. Uh, I grew up, I was a huge Defenders of the Earth fan. Uh, you know, I'd watch it every morning, and so I, I fell in love with the Phantom. Uh, you got to take over, you know, one of the originals, like from the very beginning of comics, the, the comic strips, it's the Phantom. Uh, how did that all come about? How did you feel, you know, taking the helm for this book for these? Uh, um, well, that came about in the same way that I got Judge Parker, which the unfortunate passing of a fellow cartoonist. Um, because I was doing Judge Parker uh, since 2010, and Ed Barreto, who had been doing it before me got sick and with comic strips it's not like 
oh, well, we'll just, you know, back in the old days, you get a reprint, you know, like there has to be uh, Judge Parker every day. Right. right? Um, and the other thing about newspaper strips is they're not as easy to do as people. They're actually more difficult to do than comic books because they're much more restrictive as far as the size. Uh, again, you have to produce a, a, a volume of stuff. Um, and so um, I'd done Judge Parker, which came along at a time good for me financially because I was also back in art school uh, to finish my degree. Um, and because I had that relationship with King Features, um, when Paul passed away, they, they're basically like, oh, crap, we've got to find somebody. So yeah. they thought of me right away. Um, so now I'm doing two classic newspaper strips. So, uh, you know, I was not a huge Phantom fan. Um, and certainly not like people that I know, like my dad was a big, my dad was probably more excited about me doing the Phantom than anything else I've ever done. That was his favorite when he was a kid. Right. And there are a lot, I've come to, to, uh, you know, find out and get to know and correspond with people that are, you know, I mean, I think the Phantom is probably more popular than Batman in many parts of the world. I agree. You know, in Europe and in, uh, uh, Australia, uh, and India. I mean, there's all kinds of different versions of the Phantom. You know, he's got like red trunks or a red costume here and one country. So, um, so I, I enjoy, I really enjoy doing it because, you know, I'm a fan of comic strips and classic comic strips in general. And that whole uh, way the industry used to be, a lot of those people are some of my favorite, favorite artists. Um, and you like, sort of like Batman, but even more so, um, there's only been five guys, six guys who've drawn the Phantom. Yep. Right. And, you know, so like, and a couple of them like Terry Beatty and uh, Graham Nolan, uh, and Paul Ryan. Now, Paul Ryan didn't do Batman, but he worked for DC. But there's a few of us who've both done the Phantom and Batman, so it's a very small club of people who've done that. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I mean, I, I just love it. And we said working with King Features, are you allowed, uh, do you have any input on the story at all? Can you bring in like a Mandrake or uh, one of the other characters they have on their roster, or is it pretty much you have to stick to the Phantom itself? Uh, Tony DePaul, who writes it, I think did, they did do some kind of a crossover okay. was before I was on the, um, on the, uh, uh, strip, uh, and Tony and I talk, you know, for, we just talked the other day. Um, so he's got this, uh, the story that I'm starting this week will be a, probably a very important, one of the most important phantom stories ever done i don't want to give away any spoilers um but um and it's also it's a weird situation because the fans of the strip know more about the phantom than i do right i mean i've been doing it i think i'm going to be starting my fifth year so i do go back and i do look at stuff but i mean there are people been reading it since the beginning Right. There are people who have archives of the stuff. We're really in. They know all the 
the Egmont and the Fremont, the stuff that's done in Europe, because there's stories done there, the stories done in, in uh, Australia. They really know uh, the ins and outs, you know. And uh, one of the odd things about the character is that, you know, he's the same guy, right? Who would probably be 110. <laughs> I was going to say. 110 years old. Because he fought Nazis. Right. He helped lost astronauts. Mercury astronauts, right? Uh, and he probably started being the Phantom when he was 20. So he was 20 in 1936. He'd be dead, right? <laughs> he he would he would not be still running around. So like the Phantom has a cell phone. In fact, one of the things I was talking to Tony about is that Paul Ryan came up with this kind of odd computer thing, you know? So like he will Skype with people. And I was still sort of like using the setup that Paul had come up with, which is probably, you know, 15 years old now or something. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, it's like, we kind of got to update it because I would say, well, maybe one of the bond Bandar had gone to college and he came back because, you know, unless you're an Indian deep in the Amazon, <laughs> even the, all the tribes of the people that live in Africa, they got satellite dishes now. I mean, they're not, it's not like, you know, Buana, you know, uh, like you would see in the old Tarzan film. This is not like the, the dark continent anymore, right? I mean, people are pretty, even poor villages, people are very advanced. They have cell phones, they have things like that. So um, that's one of the things that's sort of difficult with the character because they don't age in real time, but you're trying to, we're now trying to like, his son is in the Himalayas and his son is supposed to at some point when Kit the 21st dies, right. Kit would become the 22nd Phantom, right? Who knows if that will ever happen, right? But he, they were teenagers in like 1980. Seven or whenever they introduced the twins, right? They'd be like 40 now. They'd be like your guy's age, right? Right. They wouldn't still be like 17, right? So there's this weird thing with the time in strips. Um, even with Judge Parker, I started in 2010. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the biggest differences between the strip when I started and the strip now is that the original writer, Woody Wilson, is gone. And the new uh, writer, Francesco, um, decided he wanted to make it more current, which then involved all of a sudden the pandemic, right? And so one of the things that Woody Wilson never did was have a Christmas. We would have a Christmas strip, which was usually me drawing, saluting doctors or saluting our soldiers or whatever. There was no birthdays. There was no holidays, right? And that sort of kept it in this weird, quasi-realistic realm. Because like, for instance, um, when I started drawing it, Sam Driver, who was like the main lead guy, drove a 2010 yellow Corvette. He still drives a 2010 yellow Corvette. they all have iphones right all right i have never drawn them going to the store and buy an iphone 
But now everybody, ha- I mean, everybody had flip phones. Now everybody has iPhones. Well, you can get those in the mail now. I mean. Right. <laughs> so one of the things about doing comic strips is that the characters don't, a- in 10 years, I've been doing Judge Parker for 10 years, but nobody's aged 10 years. The girls, the teenage girls have gone from 15 to 18. Wow. In 10 right. years. That's like that reverse soap opera aging. <laughs> right. You know. Right. So that's yeah. So that's one of the big differences in the thing that you have to deal with in comic strips as opposed to comic books. Because I mean Peter Parker is like older than me. Right. Right? So I mean and the Fantastic Four had beetle wigs and met Nixon and you know <laughs> you know, I mean there's all this stuff that you have to that you have to sort of play around with. I mean, I guess DC just keeps resetting, hitting the reset button every three yeah. years. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's my pet peeve. As much as I love DC, as you could see from all the nonsense I have here, I mean, that's just, with comics in general, it's, you know, there's always a big event and something's going to happen and it's going to get rebooted. So, you know. Well, that, that, I guess that was one of the things that I did not enjoy about Batman was that event thing, right? Yeah. Because I sort of feel like everything had become driven by these events. And then you had to buy all 42 parts to get the thing. Now, right. financially, that might work out for you if that, like something like Nightfall, they'll keep printing that forever. So that, okay, that's good. But I don't find the, the stories to be as interesting. And I feel like, um, you know, Comics are so expensive. Nobody's going to buy 30 issues or something to get a no. story now. So yeah, I don't know. Raised, this raised the comic book price. Um, like well, there's $6 bucks. now, right? Five yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, again, there are so many things that I saw in the late 90s, which is one of the reasons why I got out of mainstream comics for the most part and went into animation and then kind of went into doing the strips and things like that just because uh, I, I think they make, they've made so many poor decisions about the industry. And still nobody knows what's going to happen in September when Marvel and DC are no longer part of Diamond. Nobody really knows what's going to happen with distribution. You know, um, that could be an, extinct, an extinction event, you know. So people don't really – there's all these other factors that affect you as a creator – they have nothing to do with whether how well you write or draw something. Now you touched on uh, animation, uh, and I'm I absolutely love the stuff that you worked on, and I agree with you. I love the Superman animated series. Um, how was that transition for you professionally? I mean, going from uh, you know print to animation. Um, I mean, that must have been quite the adjustment. It was. I mean, the the and there were other people like you know Brett did that. He he worked and in fact he did boards longer than than I did. Um, I the 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 difference is is that uh, you're really dealing with film, and when you're dealing with film, you're dealing with time, and um, the storytelling is more complex because it's more about acting 
especially working in TV, right? So there's different kinds of storyboards. There's commercial storyboards like you make for for Ford or you know somebody a serial commercial, and you might have each shot, right? But you might just have a person, you know, eating or driving the car or a shot of the car or whatever. And sometimes now they're more complex and they make an animatic, which will move or whatever, because they're really trying to show the client more what it looks like. But in TV, you're reading the script, you're drawing it out, but you're also drawing all the poses. Mm. Now on some shows like Superman or Batman, you would get the voice track. So you would get to listen to the voice and then you're trying to act. Right. So you're being the director and sometimes you're the character designer and sometimes you're a background designer. Sometimes you get designed. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you got to. Which is one of the reasons why I think it worked well for Brett and me is because that's something you get from doing comics. Um, So you would listen to the soundtrack or the voice track and you would go through and you would draw it out. But, you know, in comics, you would just might have. Batman, a really cool panel, Batman punching the Joker. But in animation, you've got to have the whole setup. I'm seeing the Joker, his arm going back, I'm punching the Joker. What happens to the Joker after the Joker gets punched? You've got to make film, right? It's yeah. a lot more drawing. I think, in my case, I've always seen, even comics, I've always seen it almost like a movie in my head, like I'm grabbing a a still. So um, it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. It was the hardest job I've ever done as Mm -hmm. far as the thinking, like how to take a script and turn it into film, which is different than how do you take a script and turn it into a comic? Mm -hmm. Because you can be a bad actor and have a funky style. And there's a lot of things that can happen in between the panel borders in a comic that you have to spell out and show in film in order for it to be a film in order for people to understand. So I found it to be uh, uh, exciting uh, and very, very demanding at the same time. How easy was it for you to adapt to different styles? And I, I say that because, so you've been involved in, and this is just three off the top of my head that I absolutely love. Uh, Superman, The Venture Brothers, and Clerks, the animated series. Three very different styles of animation. Um, All awesome, by the way. Venture Brothers, freaking amazing. Um, As an artist, how easy is that for you to just, uh, to adapt to those styles? I think that's something that I've always been good at is being able to draw in different styles. Uh, I've liked, I mean, like, I mean, that's, and again, that's sort of the funny thing about comics, because if you just looked at my stuff at Marvel, you would never think that I liked Chuck Jones or Hanna-Barbera or, you know, uh, more Drucker and Wally Wood and Jack Davis and, Maurice Noble, and you would never think that I would like to do humor stuff, but I've always loved that stuff as a kid. Um, and comics tends to typecast you because if you do, like I said, when I I did that 
robot comic at DC. So when you went to Marvel, they go, oh, you do robots. Well, we're going to give you a robot comic, right? But I think also if you have what I call the basic canon of good drawing skills, sliding stylistically, at least for me, is not that hard. I can sort of look at it, understand, you know, there's not that much difference between, you know, something like Bruce and Venture Brothers. Sort of in the same wheelhouse, because we're all influenced by the same people. We're all influenced by, you know, Wally Wood and Frank Frazetta and Jack Kirby and Alex Stone. Everybody's pulling from those same those same roots. So I think mm-hmm. once you sort of understand the straights against the curves, there's a lot of basic animation design philosophies. If you understand that, it's not that hard to go from what Bruce might do to what Gendy might do, right? You may prefer one over the other, or you may feel more comfortable. But I always like, that's one of the things I liked about animation is I could work on Samurai Jack. Yeah, that's another and, one. Oh, right, yeah. or I could work on Venture Brothers, or I could work on Superman, or I could work on Fairly Odd Parents. I liked being able to play around with a variety of of cartooning. I think that's 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 interesting. Um, one personal question. Not, it's not personal, but it's for my own. <laughs> Joseph. For, sorry. Um, how is it working on Clerks? I'm, I, like, know, I, I really like Kevin Smith, so I was just curious. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I only did one or two. I got that through my friend Chris Bailey. Um, it didn't last that long. No, no, well, it was just one yeah. season. But, yeah, so I think I did what I only did. I work on two or one. I don't remember now. I have a board somewhere. Um, you know, was was different in that there's certain shows that are writer driven shows, and there's certain shows that are artist driven shows. Mm-hmm. So I would say that the art to Clerks wasn't important. It was more important the timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the writing. Um, so like we're, but like Batman was something like Samurai Jack, it's all about the art. Yeah. Because it's not, there's, there's no dialogue or very little dialogue. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, Gendy's not going to have somebody sit. I mean, Kevin Smith is all the dialogue. All yeah. that, uh, that's his thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it'd be like a Quentin Tarantino did a film, did a, Cartoon, there'd be a lot of people talking, right? A lot of blood. Right. <laughs> so, um, I think, uh, yeah, I don't, I just remember there was stuff being repeated and yeah. it was not a lot, it was not a lot of action or a lot of, it was more like face acting, sort of yeah. like stuff like Family Guy or The Simpsons. It's almost what they call, I guess, like the stamp where you don't, you see the same figures all the time in sort of the same positions and their eyes and their mouth move and the head moves a little bit, but it's the dialogue. It's the timing that makes that cartoon funny, not the drawings. Understood. Um, The last uh, animation question I have for you is um, Justice League New Frontier. 
uh, really fantastic comic and uh, the movie. I really, really thoroughly enjoyed. Um, was that basically kind of adapting the style of, of the comic or were you able to incorporate? No, they some... were trying to do Darwin. They were trying to do Darwin. Okay. I don't remember whether Darwin, that I, that, I got that through knowing Dave Bullock, who okay. was also on Batman and Superman when I was on there. And like, that original crew of people that I worked with have sort of not over the the years have branched out. So that's like why I ended up going back and working on Batman Brave and the Bold because James Tucker had started out working on the same stuff. So you sort of get to know, again, the businesses are small enough still that if you've been working in a for five or six years, a lot of those people, you know, then they kind of move around and then you have contacts at different places mm -hmm. and they go, Oh, this person is, this person does a really, you know, great monsters. or this person is really does funny stuff or this. So again, being flexible mm -hmm. in doing different things. I mean, um, uh, James wanted me on that because it had sort of a Bruce sort of a Kirby vibe and yeah. he knows that that's something that I that I can do. So um, that's usually how that stuff kind of works out. It's like somebody goes, hey, I need an extra board guy. Are you interested? Got it. Yeah, I got to say, I mean, everything that you've worked on, and I, I'm, this is, and I, I'm going to say, I'm going to, say everything, meaning comics or animation. But I mean, everything is just so just really beautiful. And I don't, <laughs> and I say that, I mean, really, because I'm, I'm looking at, so I, you know, I had, took my notes here on the animation stuff because I, uh, apparently I watch way too much television. Um, <laughs> the, the stuff that you worked on is just really just beautiful. It's not just animation. It's such, it's so, uh, Nice. I mean, nice is just a lame word to use. I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, it's beautiful. I mean, yeah, like no, I would, I like Samurai Jack. The colors and contrast. I, I keep coming back to Adventure Brothers is my jam. So that is just fantastic. I mean, yeah. and it's it's just it's so awesome. I could, I mean, funny as hell, but like really great to watch. And you could see where those guys got their inspiration from because it's pulled from. I mean, just all the other shows that I used to watch and from comics too. So it's just such, such well, good Well, that stuff. ties into what I was saying before. I mean, everybody in my generation and say a little bit before my generation, I would say go back to people like Walt or Chaikin and people like that or like, you know, 10, 15 years older than I am. Uh, we all grew up watching the same stuff. We mm -hmm. all grew up loving the same stuff. So anybody that's my age you know, loved Mad Magazine, loved Star Wars, loved yeah. Star Trek, loved Planet of the Apes, loved, you know, Frazetta, Corbin, Mobius. I mean, you talk to anybody of my generation, you know, they've, all their heads were blown off when they saw that first issue of Heavy Metal. It was a very common thing for people. So we're all pulling from the same sources the same inspiration you know some people yeah. like 
humor more and some people like, you know, you know, drama more. But I think of my generation, we're, we're all drawing from that, that same stuff. That's probably also what's maybe different about folks coming up now is that one of the things about my generation is that we were not in control of the media, right? And they were not trying to, um, the older people, the middle-aged people, my parents, those people dictated content, right? Those were the people that the advertisers and the, the network people were trying to suck in, right? Saturday morning, yeah, they all wanted us to watch Bugs Bunny and eat cereal, right? But you saw a lot of stuff from the previous generations just as because, you know, you turn on TV and you see the Adams family or you'd see, you know, Car 54 or, you know, some old Western or whatever. So you are also exposed to a lot of stuff that people now don't get exposed to just by, by accident. Because if you actually want to watch an old episode of The Monsters, you got to really look for or you, you got to have me TV. Yeah. Or even know the MeTV shows the monsters, right? Sure. I could see the monsters just about every day when I was a kid. Or Gilligan's Island or any of that stuff, right? Yeah. So I think, again, when you go back, there were less outlets, less choices. And so everybody was more influenced by the same stuff. Right. Everybody watched the $6 million man. I got it. One more question, just because I gotta ask. Because I, I mean, I don't. Want because to... I asked a personal question, so yeah. now. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm not trying to blow smoke. I just think it's like your work and stuff. Like I remember, you know, looking for it. You know, when I was collecting, I just think it's awesome the stuff you do on animation. I have to know what are some of the coolest moments for you meeting someone. You know, meeting another artist or a writer that you were just sort of like, you know taken by as far as like oh my gosh this is really happening uh i would say that th probably three the first was meeting jack kirby oh, at, uh, my first chicago convention <laughs> and i got a picture with him and he was such a nice person mm -hmm. he signed some books now that was a guy who could have been the biggest asshole in the world just had a big ego and just been a, uh, you know, uh, he could have been Bob Kane, right? <laughs> he could have been a really <laughs> nasty, nasty person, right? Right? But he was such a nice, it was like your grandpa, yeah. just like a nice, approachable person. And so when I met him, he was such a nice person. And like, I always think about this too, because I know when you're at a convention, and I'm nowhere near the league of anybody like Kirby. But I know when somebody likes your work and they want to come up and express to you that they like their that they like your work or that your work means something to them. That's a like a, a very vulnerable moment for that person to try to express. You know, it's like if you met Paul McCartney or something, right? I mean, how are you gonna say? Right. How much this person meant to you. Right. And so when you meet somebody that you admire like that and they are such an awesome person, it is like the best thing ever. Right. Just like it's the worst thing ever if you meet somebody and they're an asshole. Yeah. 
right? So Kirby was great, and then Al Williamson was great, and I got to, you know, share a studio and buddy around with them and work with them and, and learn from him. And, I mean, that was probably the most formative learning as far as craft. And I mean, and Al had, like, the most fantastic collection of, of classic strips and everything. That was fantastic. And then I got to meet Mobius and interview him. And that was fantastic. So, and again, you know, you're meeting somebody like that who is, you know, so, you you know, you try to be like, that was the great thing about meeting Al because you meet him and then you get past the hero part. Right. And then you get to be friends and then you really get to, to have a, a bonding and a sharing, which you don't usually get when you get to meet somebody. Joe Kubert, another great, mm-hmm. great guy. You know, there's other people who were um, like I never got to meet John Buscema. I saw him. He was at the last San Diego I was at, or before the one, the, the before, one before that I just went. Um, but I he had a bunch of people, and I didn't get. I was had a table, so I didn't get a bad chance to get back. I tried to go back, but then he wasn't there. Um, uh, John Romita, just a great guy. Uh, There's other people that were very – Tom Palmer, just a fantastic person. Joe Sinnott, fantastic person. Um, uh, uh, You know, Walt Simonson, when I was 15, 16, somewhere in there. Uh, He just finished working on Battlestar Galactica. And he was at a convention in Michigan with El Milgram and I think Terry Austin and a bunch of other people. And I talked to him and I showed him my horrible samples. And he was <laughs> such a nice person. And I remember I, he's the only guy I actually ever wrote a fan letter to. Oh, all right. Yeah. You know, so I've been, I've been, been fortunate. There's other people I'm not going to, I'm not going to mention who were big influences on me. And, you know, you just can't have, but some guys you just can't have a, you can't have a good moment because they're not that type of person. Okay. Leave it at you that. know, they're, they're, they're too, they're, they're, they're almost like a character, you know, they're always, they're always playing a character. So you're not going to have a, like a real, you're not going to sit down and have a beer with them. I, I know we're running up on time, but I just I bounced off on what you just said there. What, you, what were you thinking when Image starts to come up and it's creator-owned? You know, you were a young artist at the time. What were your thoughts about all that? I mean, I'm all for uh, artists. I've always been for artists owning their stuff. And, and you know, whether I like the, the product is separate from what they're doing, you know, as far as their business sense. I think they were they were they were really smart, you know. I think the 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 in fact I tell young cartoonists I now now don't work for Marvel, don't work for DC, do your own stuff and then work for Marvel and DC because then it'll be a different thing because then they're hiring you based upon you already having a track record of your work. The way I came into the business, as I was saying. That Pangea does not exist anymore. I'm not going to call a, uh, uh, you know, a, a 20, 
two-year-old person is not going to call every editor at DC, get them on the phone, go in with a portfolio, sit on the couch, and have people go over your stuff. That just, that, you know. You, the you know, restraining order exist. on you now. Yeah, that doesn't, ex- that doesn't exist. So, there, and there's all these other things like Kickstarter and Webtoons and, you know, uh, uh, all these other formats that allow you to start out publishing your own work that did not exist when I was 20. Right. So now you're 15, you can put your stuff up on Webtoons. You know, you can put your stuff up on the internet. You can get everybody in the world who could have access to see your, your work, which was just did not exist for anybody of my generation when we started. Very cool. So I, I think that people should do that rather than work on Spider-Man as much as Spider-Man is fun. It's much better to have your Hellboy than because again, you know, when they reprint that stuff, it's nice if I get a check, (laughs) but you know, like Marvel reprints stuff overseas and I don't get any money for that. DC gives me money for that. So there's all the, again, there's all these other things where you could do something or they could put Darkhawk, in every Marvel comic, every month, forever, that would not return me one penny. Wow. What if they put it? What if they put him in the movie? If Do they put him in a movie, I will receive some money. Okay. For a movie, the, but if I really wanted, like when they made the toy, the figure, yeah. I got yeah. money for that, right? Mm-hmm. But they also have contracts that are worded in ways like, what really constitutes a figure? Like it has to have so many points of articulation and all this other stuff. Oh, really? And so, like I said, you know, it's like the, the, oh, well, it was just going around on Twitter. What was it? Last week or week before, two weeks ago, was it Ed Brubaker talking about like the how he feels about the winter soldier? Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, here's these guys invent something. Ten years later, it's making a billion dollars, right? He is not getting 10% of a billion dollars. He's not even getting 1% of a billion dollars, probably. So, again, you know, you're not thinking about that. Nobody gets into comics thinking like, oh, you know. But now, of course, everybody from from the get-go is thinking about that. So, like, I would never create Darkhawk now for Marvel or DC. I would only, I would never create anything for them. Right. I would draw something, get my page rate, but I would never create any new characters for them because mm-hmm. it doesn't really pay for you to do that. You, you That's why the image guys went over and did their own thing because they approached Marvel and Marvel was like, mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they just did their own stuff, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that they passed, the Marvel passed on the Ninja Turtles, <laughs> passed on so many things. In fact, you know, Marvel should have been there should have been no Tokyo Pop. It should have been Marvel reprinting all the great manga and anime because they would have gotten a whole generation of female readers that they completely lost out on all those. When you would, when I used to go into Borders, you know, what is it, 10, 15, 20 years ago, there was all these women in there, young girls in there, reading comics. And what is driving the comic book business today? Not Spider-Man, 
It's all the middle grade and all the female readers that are reading all these books that appeal to them. And there's more of them than there is guys like you and me reading comic books. And the publishers completely lost out on that whole, that, that whole world of readers, you know? Man, oh man. <laughs> well, Mike, I want to uh, thank you. Oh, you're this, welcome. This has been super interesting. I mean, <laughs> it, it really has. Uh, I got to gush about the, the shows I like. <laughs> and uh, the work you've done is fantastic. Well, thank so you. I really the, uh, we're not just blowing smoke. I mean, we really, really, really appreciate what you do. Well, I, 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 I appreciate that. I mean, it, 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 you know, when you're sitting there at three o'clock in the morning and you're, you know, you're working and you're, you know, you're very passionate. It's a passionate job. It's hard to do this job and not be passionate. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's much, I always appreciate when people come up and tell me uh, that they like the work that I did. They like the cartoons that I worked on, or they like something, you know, like again, like Darkhawk, which is you know, <laughs> it feels good to get a little love on something like that that I did a long time ago when I was uh, a young guy cutting my teeth in the business, and uh, to hear that people enjoyed it and still think of it of it fondly uh, is uh, is a good thing. Yeah, that's Thanks a good good thing about comics. I mean, there's, I mean, look, it's a you know cheesy saying, but there's something for everybody. I mean, there's so much stuff out there. I mean, you can, yeah, you may not like Spider-Man or DC or Marvel, but, you know, there's a ton of other stuff out there for someone to sink their teeth into. So Yeah, so. if only it just cost a dime, right? Like, or <laughs> uh, dude. I don't know. I really, I don't know how, you know, I make an okay living. I don't know how people can have a pull box with like 30 comics in it. No. Just go broke, no. You know? We have a friend who, I mean, Orrin and I like comics. Orrin buys the older stuff. I buy some of the newer stuff. We have a friend who buys a ton of comics each week. And, I mean, his, you know, his living space is just overrun by comic book boxes. And I could just imagine what he's spending. I mean, it's ridiculous. Now, do you guys read, like, Comicsology, or do you read stuff online just to read the... I do. You don't have the... You know, slush pile of no. I mean, I I buy comics pretty regularly through Comicsology, and it's really only out of convenience because the there were a couple of comic book shops in my area, but they've closed. So the one that is the closest to me is probably about a twenty minute drive, and it's off the beaten path for me. So I just you know with kids and everything, I just can't get to it. Um, so yeah, I, you know I. I buy, you know, when I go up to where Oren is, he's about uh, a uh, half hour north of me. You know, we go, we'll go to another comic book shop up there and we'll just dig through the back bins and, you know, the dollar bins like we do and uh, get all as much as we can. But I mean, even digitally, it's, I bought probably about, I bought six comics this week and, um, Granted, there was, there was a bit of a reduction in the price because, I, like, I subscribe to stuff. But still, you know, it was $45. Okay. So I always That's, bring I always bring stuff up like that because you think, okay, if you're a teenager. Yeah. Right. My first job is a dishwasher. <laughs> I could buy 
every Marvel and DC comic that came out that month if I wanted. There's no way now, and I make a lot more than I made when I was a dishwasher. <laughs> there is no way I could afford to buy. Oh no, comic. No, I mean I remember when I first started collecting, which was in you know mid mid nineties. Um, I would go and buy. I would just consume as much as I could, you know, like I didn't have anything that I was necessarily regularly following, but whatever caught my eye and stuff. And I would come out with a stack, you know, granted it wasn't, you know, 10 cents, but significantly less, you know, a dollar 50, maybe, maybe two bucks for a special issue. But now five, six dollars is just obscene. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys read any web comics or anything? Do you, uh, I have not, but I'm always open to reading, you know, new stuff. So if there's something I should keep an eye out for and look, by all means. And I'm a bit of a weirdo. I just read comics from 1993 and earlier. So <laughs> it's like, I, because I, I stopped initially collecting around 93 and then I got back into it about 2015. I'm like, boy, a lot's happened in that time period. But I'll go back to the comics <laughs> I'm familiar with and, and pick up from there. So like uh you know stuff from the 80s and the 70s i'm just I, I mean i love it like you said the early batman like when he was sort of happy go lucky like i like that uh, he doesn't have to be growling at everyone and putting people through windows you know there could be a few goofy issues but that's fine you know the same thing with superman like he wasn't this tormented soul you know the biggest problem he had personally was he was going to be late to the set of the news that he had to do that night but, right you know, besides that, he had everything else under control. I, I, I sort of like that part of the old Fleischer cartoons where he was kind of a dick. He'd be like, I'm going to spook you, Loris. You know what I mean? He was, uh, I like that version of, of, uh, of Superman. It was sort of interesting because actually on the cartoon, in the Bible for that show, it was, they kind of moved away from it. But originally... There was that general who was suspicious of Superman in the beginning. And that was going to be the thing where they didn't kind of, you know, you're walking around with a guy who's basically a god. who's like got atom bombs in each fist, right? And so that one general, if you remember in the beginning of the first few episodes, didn't quite trust the Kryptonian or whatever he was. And that was part of the series pitch. They kind of moved away from that, I think, as as the series went on, but um, I like the fact that um, uh, there was that aspect to his, to his, uh, his character. And I think Tim Daly did a great voice. Yes. Yeah. He really, uh, he had, he had just like, just the right, kind of like a a voice like uh, Christopher Reeves. His son too. Tim Daly's son did the same. He did, I guess, I don't know where, but I know he did some, uh, uh, Superman uh, stuff as well because his voice just is almost exactly like his father's. Huh? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I really, I really, uh, uh, and you know, I'm imagining since they're bringing back the Batman show now, supposedly they're going to start doing new. I would yes. not be surprised if they do not eventually do new episodes of the Superman show. I say bring it back, and Justice League is all also because that was great. Yeah, everybody. I mean, what they did, how many years have been? 10, like 40? Yeah. <laughs> he ain't 10 you know? anymore. 
<laughs> well, well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So that was our interview with Mike Manley. Pretty cool, huh? Guy has done a fair amount of really cool work. Uh, we had an absolute pleasure talking to him. Picked his brain about comics, about animation, about all the great work he's done. Yeah, I was uh, so happy to get a chance to talk to him. He was uh, one of the artists that really stood out to me in the 90s. And now to be able to hear about his career and uh, his experiences in the industry was just fantastic. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, fellow bandits, for that interview. Uh, you know what I'm going to say now. Rate, review, subscribe. We are a podcast primarily, so uh, please find us where you found this particular episode. Uh, we also do quite, amount, uh, quite a good amount of YouTube episodes, so uh, Dollar Bin Bandits on YouTube. And hey, hit us up by email, dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Hit us up on social. We are on Twitter at dbbandits. We are on Instagram at Dollar Bin Bandits. We are on Facebook at Dollar Bin Bandits. We are everywhere. We haunt your dreams. So anyway, my dreams. Are hope haunted. you enjoyed these episodes. <laughs> we will be moving on with more uh, fantastic guests next week. But until then, be well. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Orrin Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.